0: We're starting a series today on mental illness and the church, and so there'll be three sermons on this. I've selected two passages as starting points for today's message. Uh, One comes from Galatians, and it's about what brings us together as a church. And the second comes from 2 Corinthians, and it speaks of the frailty of our bodies First, from Galatians chapter 3. You can just simply listen to these words if you'd like. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothing. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And then from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 5. We do not go around preaching ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said... Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We're pressed on every side by troubles. We're not crushed. We're perplexed, not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but not abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but are not ourselves destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. May God bless the reading of this word, and would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray you speak to us and I pray that you take the words spoken and use them how you see fit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a debate in the Talmud about when the night ends and when the dawn begins. A rabbi asks his students, How do we know when the night is over and when the day has arrived? One student replied, Rabbi, night is over and day arrives when you can see a house in the distance and you can determine if it's your house or your neighbor's house. Another student responds, Teacher, night is over. Day arrives when you can see an animal in the field. Determine if it belongs to you or your neighbor. Still a third student responded rabbi night is over day has arrived when you can see a flower in the garden and distinguish its color from the colors of others well the rabbi thundered in response no 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 it's always fun to have those teachers huh Why must we see only in separations, only in distinctions and disjunctions? My students, darkness is over and day has arrived when you can look into the face of the person beside you and you can see that she is your sister, that he is your brother. Night is over when you can see that you belong to each other. Night has ended and day has arrived when you can see God in the face of of the person next to you. Okay, we'll chalk that one up to the teacher. Today we begin a three week series on mental illness. The sermons in the next few weeks will focus on things like how we can make steps as a church to be safe and hospitable place for those whose lives have been impacted by mental illness. Ways that we can look into the face of those whose lives are impacted by mental illness with love and compassion knowing that there are brothers and our sisters. Today I'm going to spend most of my time uh, addressing stigma that is associated with mental illness. And I want to address some of the ways that the church and um, Christians have added to this stigma, how I have added to this stigma. And I want to offer some theological reflection, even though it's just scratching the surface, that I hope will move us towards being a faith community that breaks this kind of stigma around mental illness. But first, uh, let me set the table just a little bit, and and I and I want to say, this sermon more than most has been shaped, input provided by friends with mental illness, by professionals in that field, uh, by organizations who work in this area, and by just books and things that have helped educate me though I have much to learn. What is mental illness? According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI, mental illness is a medical condition disrupting a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and to function in their day-to-day lives. Some conditions include, and Susan named some of these in her prayer. This is not an exhaustive list. But some include addictions, anxiety disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD it's known as, bipolar illness, depression, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD, personality disorders, postpartum depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD, and schizophrenia, just to name some. Again, not an exhaustive list. The causes of mental illness are very complex. Trauma can play a role in triggering a mental illness. Chemical imbalances in the brain can be factors. Genetics can make some of us more susceptible. And our environment can impact us too. Drugs, alcohol, illness, stress. But mental illness is not imaginary. It's real. Mental illness is not something that can simply be willed away or just gotten over. It's a medical condition. Furthermore, mental illness is not a character flaw. Did you hear me? It's not a character flaw. While mental illness plays a part in a person's story, a mental illness does not define who a person is. Experts and advocates tell us that most mental illnesses can be treated effectively with medication, therapy, diet, exercise, support. And I'm lifting this right off of web pages on mental illness. Recovery is possible. Experts tell us also that mental illness is common depending on which statistics you're reading, somewhere between one in four or one in five people will develop a mental illness in their lifetime. We have four sections right now in this church, the way we kind of organize our seating. This means that one whole section of this room at some point in our lifetime will develop a mental illness. When we think about that and consider the number of parents, spouses, (laughs) <laughs> excuse me, children and friends of those with mental illness, the reality is just about, just about every person in this room <clears throat> feels the effect of mental illness in their lives. Almost all of us. I asked a friend of mine recently who walks with a mental illness, what is one thing you hope gets spoken about in this series? What, if there's just one thing, what do you hope it is? And this person looked at me and said, please talk about stigma. Talk about the stigma around mental illness. Because it creates so much shame and loneliness. You just feel alone. And you're afraid to tell anyone because you're afraid you're going to be judged. That's what my friend said to me. As I learned more about this stigma, I came to understand just how critical it is that we address it. In 1999, the U.S. Surgeon General called stigma the most formidable obstacle to future progress in the arena of mental illness and health. It was the number one problem the Surgeon General identified. NAMI, the organization I just referenced a moment ago, states that the one thing that erodes confidence that mental disorders are real and treatable health conditions is stigma. According to one study, the most common response from family members when asked how a church could better assist them in caring for loved ones with mental illness was this. By far and away, the number one response. Please, church, talk more openly about mental illness so that the topic becomes less stigmatized. Stigma. Stigma is a set of negative, often unfair beliefs ...that a society or a community has about something. It's negative and unfair. Stigma looks like exclusion, avoiding people with mental illness or distancing ourselves from them... ...because we're afraid or that they're untouchable in some way. Stigma can look like ignorance, telling someone to toughen up or snap out of it... ...or in a church context to get rid of sin in order to get rid of mental illness... Stigma can look like silence, simply ignoring it, not talking about it. Stigma can look like name-calling, using insulting or derogatory language towards someone with a mental illness. Uh, I came across some literature from NAMI, and uh, they asked this question. They said, can you think of a derogatory term for someone with cancer? I couldn't. And yet, derogatory terms for those with mental illness find their way into TV shows, movies, music. They're kind of part of the vernacular. This adds to stigma. And stigma can have devastating consequences. People with mental illness feel ashamed that it's their fault. They hide. I've heard those with mental illness say that they are just They're just too much for people. I'm too much for them. I'm too much of a burden. I'm not good enough or lovable. I don't belong. They're self-loathing. Something is wrong with with the core of who I am. A devastating result of that, of course, is that uh, sometimes those with mental illness don't get help or the treatment that would so help them and benefit them. And this is also true for the families of those with mental illness for children whose parents struggle with mental illness, for parents whose children suffer from it, so that I don't tell people they feel alone. Mental illness has been called the no-casserole disease. I don't know if you've heard that before. Mental illness is sometimes called the no-casserole disease. When someone is diagnosed with cancer, people show up with casseroles. It's a sign of support and care, even if that casserole might not be very good. It's a gesture that says you need not feel the shame of this. You are not alone. I'm here for you, and I love you. I recently read one mother's experience when her son was diagnosed with severe depression. She didn't get any casseroles. No one came over to be with her or her son or her family. No phone calls. The mother said, but I don't blame anyone because I didn't tell anyone. I was too afraid of what people would think of me or think of my son. Now, I believe that the church does have a lot to offer when it comes to mental illness, both in terms of our worldview and our hope, but also in terms of care and support. Though, sadly, rather than being a place of support and care, um, churches in many ways add to the stigma of mental illness. Someone recently shared with me, someone who walks with mental illness, said to me, you know, we talk about mental illness at school. And they talk about mental illness in the academy, lectures and so forth. Doctors, of course, are really good about talking about mental illness. Goodness, even politicians will talk about mental illness. But I've never heard a sermon at church about mental illness. Guilty. That's on me. I've served at Emmaus for 10 years, and I've served as senior pastor for five, and today is the first time I've ever directly spoken about mental illness from the pulpit. And that needs to change. And I hope that this effort will continue our ability as a church to break the silence on this, something that I know many people in here work towards. You've done good work, and thank you so much. There are a couple of other ways that churches can add to stigma that I want to just name. Uh, For example, the view that the only proper Christian response to a mental illness is prayer, scripture, or more faith. Please let me be clear. Prayer, scripture, and more faith? (laughs) When are those a bad thing? They're good things. It's to the neglect of other treatments that can be very helpful and needed. But maybe you've heard that said before. Maybe you've said that before. It could be that some of us here, like myself, need to put our hands in the air and say, I need to learn. I need to change. More on that next week. So I'm a type 1 diabetic. Here's my insulin. I know it's not a mental illness. As a part of my ongoing treatment for my chronic disease, I have to take insulin because my body does not make it. As you might know, our bodies need insulin or we will die. I know it's kind of dark. I've only had it happen once in my life where someone approached me and made a connection between my use of insulin and my faith. This person approached me and asked me, I think he was well-meaning, Abe, have you ever stepped out in faith to trust in God to receive a miracle of healing? Have you ever stopped using your insulin as an act of faith to show God that you trust him in everything and prayed for a healing provision? Honestly, the first thought that crossed my mind was, if I stop taking my medicine, my wife will kill me. You're not married yet, young man. <laughs> Someday you'll know. But that did happen. And I want to be honest about how I, I'm just going to speak for myself, how I understand that moment between me and that individual. I think that that approach to faith and that view of medicine, I think, is ignorant. Ignorant about what diabetes is, and by analogy, what medicine is for those with a mental illness. But I also think that this way of thinking, to just have more faith, just to pray more, just get rid of sin in life, this approach, I think, is skewed theology. I believe it's skewed theology and doesn't square very well with the fullness of Scripture and what we learn there about what it means to be a human being. Now, this is just scratching the surface. I'm not going to give a fully developed theology of anthropology. don't have time for that right now. But the Scriptures teach us some things about what it means to be a human being. The Scriptures teach us that God made Adam out of soil, out of dirt, Out of the earth we're physical and then God said this is very good we are physical that's what it means to be human the scriptures teach us that God breathed the breath of life into Adam life's breath is what it means to be human and that life's breath comes from the breath of God we can call it a spiritual self we can call it a soul God looked upon Adam saw that he was alone and God proclaimed, this is not good. And made Adam a partner. We are social. That is what it means to be human. The scriptures tell us that God made humans in the image of God. We have the capacity to bring order and meaning and purpose to the world in which we live. Just like God did in the seven days of creation that we find in Genesis chapter 1. We are not souls trapped In bodies. As though our ultimate hope is that we might one day shed these ugly things and float around heaven without a body playing harps, though I don't know how you do that without hands. (laughs) No, God calls the physical good. To be physical is to be human, and to deny that not only denies what it means to be human. But it also denies the goodness of God's craftsmanship. The soul is not meant to be without a body. We are body souls or soul bodies. It's integrated, it's together. So much so that Paul will say when the body dies, the soul is like naked, it's incomplete. The ultimate expression of this, there's so much that could be said but the ultimate expression of what I'm talking about are contained in the two highest holy days of the Christian calendar. Christmas, when we celebrate that God became a body at the Incarnation, and Easter, the day that we celebrate that our Lord Jesus Christ rose back into this completion in resurrection. Jesus is the ultimate expression of what it means to be a human being, and Jesus has a body. Amen. The Christian view of what a human is is robustly integrated, kind of dyads, if you will spirit souls, body souls. And to deny either is to deny the fullness of our humanness, which is soul and body, which de- God declared to be good in his sight. Uh, there's a story in 1 Kings about the prophet Elijah. Elijah's fleeing for his life because Jezebel and Ahab want him dead. So he goes alone into the wilderness, into hiding. He's been traveling all day. He sits down underneath a solitary broom tree and prays that he might die. I've had enough, he says. Lord, take my life. He's in dark places right there. I'm no better than my ancestors, and they're dead, and that's where I want to be. Then he lay down, he fell asleep under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, 1 Kings chapter 19, it says that an angel touched him and said to him, do you remember what the angel said? What do you think the angel said? You need more faith, Elijah. Elijah, God will not give you something you cannot handle. Is that what the angel said? You need to pray better than that. Good grief. No. The angel said, get up and eat. And go back to sleep so he did and the angel wakes him up again eat some more he you know he finds this baked bread and and this water he eats he lays down uh and then and then the angel says this get up eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you in other words it's going to be too much for you to handle if you don't take care of your body God won't give you something you can't handle. Okay, well, (laughs) make sure you're eating and you're sleeping and you're drinking water, Elijah. And so then he's able to do it. Forty days and forty nights. And he, he walks and he comes to Mount Horeb. The body needs food. The body needs sleep. Guess what else? The body needs insulin, too. We know that there are physical realities associated with mental illness, that medicines and treatments are effective. There's no shame in taking medication. At least there shouldn't be. Or in receiving treatment for mental illness. To the contrary, I think it is an act of gratitude to receive the things that strengthen our bodies like we do our food and our sleep. Give us this day our daily bread. There's one more thing I want to mention today. I know I'm on a little bit longer clock, but still. I'm going to unpack more of this next week. But there's another thing that I think can sometimes add to the stigma of mental illness in the church. And in fact, I think that this adds to the stigma associated with so much of the brokenness of the human condition. I'm speaking of what you might call uh, perfectionism or naive positivism in the church. You know, everything's okay, and I'm happy, The veneer that life is always good, perfect kids, perfect spouse, perfect marriage, perfect job, perfect stuff, oh my goodness, or at least above average, right? Happy, happy, joy, joy, everything's great, smiles all the time, everything's okay. What message does this this send to people who are struggling or to those whose lives are falling apart, or for that matter, what message are we sending to ourselves about faith and church and our lives? Do we need a Savior? I think we do. And in our book, in our book, is deep and rich language about things like suffering and pain and darkness and lament and anger and depression and anxiety. There's language also in there about not hiding our brokenness from each other, Um, I want to read a a really short excerpt from this book, Troubled Minds, by Amy Simpson. It's about mental uh, illness in the church. I would recommend the book. And she writes about a NAMI worker, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And this NAMI worker is working in a community, trying to build awareness, break stigma, things like that, and is having the toughest of times with some of the churches in the community because they don't want to deal with mental illness. And the tsunami writer, or uh, worker, writes, I'm saddened over this because there are people within the church attending Bible studies together, staying quiet because of fear. And I know that a percentage of them experience depression or other illness, but they don't know that about each other because no one's decided to share it. But if they did, they would feel comfort. But the church leans towards perfection, I think. Everything's fine, everything's okay, instead of the real message of Christ. I show you my scars, and you're attracted. The resurrected Jesus has scars on his body because of what happened to him, and when the disciples were in doubt and afraid, Jesus didn't hide his scars. Rather, Jesus showed his scars to strengthen their faith. And this is instructive for us, I think. And it should help us to say, like the Apostle Paul says, yes, we are fragile, like jars of clay, but this demonstrates the power of God inside of us. To be continued. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I don't know how um, these words fall on everybody here, but I know that you speak to our minds and speak to our hearts. We pray today for those who are confronted by the sadness and the ambiguity, the confusion of mental illness. We lift them up as our brothers and our sisters. We pray for those who they depend on for attention and compassionate care. Look on people, Lord, with these afflictions with mercy. Provide them with homes of dignity and peace. Make this church a sanctuary. May we have understanding helpers, and may we have those who are willing to accept help. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.